Coming up on Philosophy Talk... Philosophers often speculate about possible worlds, ways that things could be. But some of them also believe in impossible worlds, ways that things couldn't be. Alice laughed. (laughs) There's no use trying, she said. One can't believe in possible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the Queen. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. The round square? The square circle? Is there somewhere they exist? If you try to describe an impossibility, aren't you just going to contradict yourself? I think the world we live in, our world, is impossible. Our guest is Koji Tanaka from the Australian National University. That's impossible. That's impossible. That's impossible. That's impossible. It's impossible. It's impossible, I'm afraid. Impossible Worlds. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Hey, philosopher. Just taking a moment to thank you for being a listener. And asking you to please consider making an end-of-year gift to support the program so that we can continue to question everything. Except your intelligence. This year, it's been everything from cancel culture to contradictions, from wise women to weird wants. So head on over to our website, philosophytalk.org, and click support us at the top of the page. Or give the gift of thought to the other philosopher in your life with a subscription to our library of nearly 600 episodes. Thank you for listening. Thank you for thinking. And thank you for supporting Philosophy Talk. Could there be such a thing as an impossible world? If there were, could we even imagine it? Would contradictions suddenly become true? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landing. And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy, and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today, we're thinking about impossible worlds. Impossible worlds. You know, that always seemed like a contradiction in terms to me. I, I totally get it about possible worlds. Like... There's a world out there where I teach philosophy and you teach French. Ah, oui. C'est ça, exactement. But okay, that's possible worlds, right? Surely there isn't a world in which you do teach French and you don't teach French. That's impossible. Well, wait, you accept that there's, you know, a possible world where I have three heads, right? Okay, yeah. Well, that's already pretty weird. Why not also think there's a world where I both do teach French and don't teach French? Well, the problem isn't that it's weird. It's that it's contradictory. It it violates the laws of logic. So that world can't exist. Wait, wait. According to that impossible world, contradictions are true. You know, that's why it's impossible. I said that contradictions are true in impossible world. I don't think they're true in real life. Oh, you're you're, you're breaking my brain here, Ray. If something is contradictory, how can it be true Anywhere. I mean, you can't be older than your mother wherever you are, even if you move to Mars. But impossible worlds aren't places you can visit. They're more like stories, and stories can contradict themselves. Okay, now you're moving to my terrain. I love stories, and I love contradictory stories. One of my favorite examples is the Sherlock Holmes stories, where Watson sometimes has a war wound on his leg and sometimes doesn't. I love that. So if you love that, why don't you love impossible worlds? You've just given an example of one. The world of Conan Doyle's fiction. It's here. It's impossible. Get used to it. But the, okay, but the thing is, there's no world of Conan Doyle's fiction. There are just multiple possible worlds that Conan Doyle kind of confused with each other. He just forgot that he originally gave Watson a war wound in his shoulder instead of his leg. 
Okay, maybe that works for the Sherlock Holmes stories, but you can also tell stories that are inconsistent on purpose. Just think about those fantastic drawings by M.C. Escher, like the one where people keep going up and up and up a staircase, and then they end up exactly where they started. Mm, that's one of my favorite pictures ever. But again, I'm not sure it depicts an impossible world. I mean, couldn't we say it's two possible worlds sandwiched together? Like, if you cover up either half of the picture, all you see is people going up. It's only when you put those two halves together that they don't make sense. Yeah, Josh, you can get a possible world if you cover up half the picture. But the point is to look at the whole picture. That's where there's an impossible world. Besides, not all impossible fictions are so easy to separate into parts like that. Just think about Tamar Gendler's Tower of Goldbox story. Oh, right. That's the one about God punishing mathematicians when they prove that every even number is the sum of two primes. God makes it so that 12 is suddenly no longer the sum of 5 plus 7. Right. But he offers to relent if the mathematicians can find 12 virtuous people. And they manage to find 5 from one village and 7 from another, but they can't put them together to make 12. It's so good. It's such a great story. But... I regret to say, Ray, I don't think it proves your point. The fact is, I can't imagine that world. I can't imagine the world of the Tower of Goldbach, a world where 5 plus 7 is not equal to 12. In fact, that's one reason I love the story so much. Well, maybe our guest will help you to imagine it. It's Koji Tanaka, a philosopher of logic from the Australian National University. In the meantime, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, to think about the impossible worlds of patients with dementia. She files this report. Last I can see the purpose of my life, Bartleby, and I'm content. In Herman Melville's short story, Bartleby, we meet a clerk who one day refuses to do any new tasks. He says repeatedly, I would prefer not to. My mission in this world, Bartleby, is to provide you with office space for as long as you may choose to remain. Fiction has the luxury to play with reality. Dasha Kipper, a clinical psychologist, says the hapless narrator and his desperate and futile efforts remind her of caregiving for patients with dementia. Instinctually, viscerally, I always thought my mind would always flash on some of the literature that I read, that I think that really captured the absurdity and the banality of being a caregiver. Kipper says caregivers are navigating these impossible worlds where they can't count on memory, logic, or continuity. She writes about that in her book, Travelers to Unimaginable Lands, stories of dementia, the caregiver, and the human brain. It's almost like a philosophical thought experiment because everything that the human mind needs that make it possible for us to sustain human relationships is now slowly being taken away by this disease. And she's seen how this plays out. When Kipper was 25, she moved in to care for a 98-year-old Holocaust survivor in the first stages of Alzheimer's disease. What really struck me as I was taking care of him was how much my own brain was kind of unraveling. Kipper also watched how the man's son would have the same argument with his dad over and over. I would see his son going into the, you know, anger, argument, guilt, anger, argument, guilt. Even knowing about his father's disease, the son would return to the familiar routine and the same family dynamics. In Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis, the family also falls back to their usual ways in spite of the main character Gregor's pretty dramatic transformation. Gregor Samsa awoke one morning to discover 
that he had been transformed into a giant cockroach. On the one hand, everything changed <laughs> when their son transformed into a bug. And on the other hand, absolutely nothing changed. And I found that to be so emblematic of families with dementia. In another example from Kipper's book, a husband begins to think that at certain moments, his wife Elizabeth is no longer his wife, but an intruder. She would say, no, I'm, I'm your wife. She'd give him all this evidence. And he would throw her out of the house. He'd become very hostile and defensive. And Elizabeth was really ashamed later on to say how long it took her to stop arguing. Even when caregivers stop arguing against impossible worlds, they can still feel irrational emotions. Kipper points to another example where a husband sees his wife having conversations with book jackets, sharing her childhood in Vienna with Marcel Proust. He would be envious of Thomas Mann. He was very protective of his wife's inner world. And when he would ask about her world to try to be included in it, and he did this gently, she would get very angry with him like he was intruding and he should really mind his own business. We're biological creatures with social needs that are hard to push aside. Kipper says we expect caregivers to feel sadness, but we rarely acknowledge or see how their own brains are being tormented in the process too. This disease demands so much of our brain that I really believe we're not always capable of. Um, the barriers are so big, and those barriers are not just logistic, they're also um, neurological. Dasha Kipper says it's a mistake to look at the disease in a vacuum, where one brain has deficits and the other is perfectly healthy, reasonable, and capable. When one person lives in an impossible world, the people close by dip into it too. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.